This episode of LA Meekly is brought to you by a brand new podcast brought to you by a father and son team. It is called Why Do We Say That? I think that sounds great. Tell me more about it, please. Do they play Cat Stevens as an intro? Yeah, they (laughs) play uh, Cats in the Cradle. (laughs) So the podcast is Why Do We Say That? They have a lot of fun on the show. And what they do is it's, you know, it's like half hour episodes and they delve into why do we say certain sayings? For example, they've covered 23 Skidoo. Paint the town red, rule of thumb, giving 110%. So they go into why do we say those things? They're called why do we say that? That sounds like a lot of fun because every time I find out the meaning of a phrase, I feel so much smarter, even though it doesn't make me smarter. Yeah. When I found out what uh, yeah, the meaning behind 23 skidoo, well, I was so uh, interested. Yeah, well, I, I'm always, it. don't spoil don't, it. Don't spoil it, Greg. Don't <laughs> you say that. That's our pre-show <laughs> podcast where we talk about not spoiling what's going to be on their podcast. So again, their podcast, why do we say that? Check it out on iTunes. You'll have a good time. Check them out. Why do we say that? Orange logo. Why do we say that? Hi, welcome to the Art Museum of Art, a joint venture brought to you by our founders, Art Garfunkel and Art Carney. Welcome in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, Hey, where's your fire extinguisher? Why? Is is there a problem? Oh, no, no, no. I just want to see your fire extinguisher is all. Well, I ensure you this building is safe in case of emergency, so please go in and enjoy the wonderful pieces of the AMA. I will. I just very much prefer to see the fire extinguisher. Look, I know what you're trying to do. You have no idea what I'm trying to do. I just want to see the fire extinguisher. I know your type. You come in here and you tell that tired old dad joke where you go to a museum, stand in front of a fire extinguisher and say, Oh, wow, this is beautiful. Who drew this? I won't let you. No, I'm not. Just let me see it. You know what joke I'm about to tell. Sir, as a curator here, I can't in good conscience let you make that joke. What difference is it to you? This is what museums are for. It'll be the funniest thing to ever happen here. It'll be so funny they'll put me in a frame. Well, a joke's on you. Our building has no fire extinguishers, air conditioning dials, or stanchions just to prevent that joke from being told. Busted! Detective Marshall Fire. Fire Marshal. MD. No fire extinguishers in here? This place is going down. Like Van Gogh's sense of self-worth over the years. Oh, oh Jesus. Oh, please don't shut us down. Our Carney will have his enforcers send me to the moon. And our Garfunkel, he's just gonna break my fingers one at a time. That has nothing to do with Paul Simon. He just likes to do it. Well, I guess I don't have to lay down the law on you. If you hang this up. A fire extinguisher? Never! I'd rather this community lose access to a free cultural institution than to let people like you come in here and tell that joke. I can get used to living on the moon with broken fingers as long as I never have to hear that joke where a fire extinguisher is a beautiful piece of art. Ever again! Gee, I didn't know people felt so strongly about that joke. I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard is all and wanted to bring a small moment of joy to my sad life. You know, things have been hard for me after I lost the wife in that fire. It got out of control because I donated all of our fire extinguishers to art museums. I guess I don't need that one fleeting moment of happiness if it makes other people so angry at my expense. You're right, you don't. You know what? Keep the museum. It's fine. The world needs art more than I need that funny, funny joke. I see that now. I appreciate you understanding. Well, I guess I'll be going. Oh, wait, what is that? This piece here, it's as if it's speaking directly to me. It, it's beautiful. I simply must have it. What, that? That's just a light switch. <sighs> have a nice day. Detective Marshall Fire, Fire Marshal MD, strikes again.
Daniel is trying to drown himself with a bottle of water right now, so he can't be with us. I realized right before we started, I didn't, I didn't do my vocal warm ups, <laughs> and I wanted to drink some water, but then the straw is like stuck wrong, and now I can't drink any water. Oh my god, this is the worst. Oh my god, it's like watching a calf suckle at a cow's teeth for the for the first time. Yeah, for the first time, still not getting the hang of it. Could you wear this prosthetic water bottle on your chest and let me try to drink that? One? <laughs> is that an adult size sippy cup? <laughs> It has two different things, so I'm going to have to go with the sippy function instead of the straw function. For your adult babies. <laughs> For your man babies. <laughs> For your man babies. Hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome to episode 88. It is our official 12th quarantine episode. God. We well, started last 12th April. Main. One year ago, we were saying, do you think it's safe to go record in CSUN like normally in a room together with no masks or anything? Do you think <laughs> Sitting that's at a good the same idea? table? <laughs> Sitting not one foot apart from each other? Do you think that's a good idea? A recording in a freezing park with people coming up to us. Is this a quarantine podcast? Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Wow, I just got here from Alabama. I got the first case of coronavirus. That microphone, you must be a millionaire. There were no Southern people at the park. <laughs> As is the rule of that park. <laughs> and it's windy right now. Yeah, we're ba- now we're in the parking of my building, and yeah. we're, we're sitting in an area to hide from my landlords, yeah. which is creating a wind tunnel, which is blowing straight at me. I don't know if you're feeling it as much like on your face. No, I feel it. It's coming from above, mm. as wind does, and dropping, <laughs> and then come like on my lap towards yeah. you. I can feel how it's moving because my it's back like, is not windy, but my front is It's like is a massage windy. for you, <laughs> but to me, I'm getting punched in the face. By <laughs> no, mommy, I don't want it. That's a video you probably haven't seen. No, and this is yeah. Yet another segment of Greg explaining a meme or something <laughs> funny. A something f- a, it's a TikTok. A video. <laughs> it's a four second video made by a child. Yeah, what people don't hear is that I usually spend an hour catching Daniel up to the internet. You're my human Reddit. <laughs> Did you already say that this is officially episode 88? Yeah, this is episode this is 88. Back to the Future anniversary. <laughs> Did you get me a gift relating to Back to the Future? Yeah, but it's a 1955. <laughs> I got a crazy idea about how we're going to get it. It's a date with your mom. (laughs) (laughs) A date with your own mom. Happy anniversary. Well, look, when this episode hits the 88 minute mark, you're going to see some serious uh, edited for TV consumption. (laughs) Some necking. You're going to cut your hand trying to get us out of the trunk. (laughs) And then uh, I'm going to steal your wallet. He stole his wallet. You can't play Earth Angel. You stole a wallet. (laughs) I've only seen that movie once. Is that what happened? Steals his wallet and it has the lyrics to Earth Angel inside (laughs) of it. And that's how Chuck Berry was born. (laughs) Well, before we get into anything, we have a few new Patreon people. Oh. Oh, I'm so happy that we have new people. Oh, I did my best missed outfire right now. Unintentionally. Darlings. Did you hear that? Here's another thing on the internet. that There's like an (laughs) R-rated version. Yeah. There was a push for an NC-17 version and director had to be like, no, but I'll give you the R version. I feel like, I mean, he's topless in a lot of it. Yeah. And topless Robin Williams, that's NC-17. That's like... When there's that much hair on one person. (laughs) I'm trying to think of what NC can stand for in terms of hair. No no clothing. No clothing (laughs) 17 times in that movie. (laughs) That's how you get an NC-17 movie. Listen to yeah. our new Patreon people. We've got Go slow. Jordana Benoni. Hi, Jordana. Or, or Benone. If you pronounce it properly, it's Jordana Benonst. <laughs> Uh, and then we have Zach Neenan. And then we have Francis R. Sistos, nay Rosenberg. Whoa. We know her. She's the now wife of uh, the guy who did our theme, theme song. song. Francis. Who is also a Patreon person. Francis. Hi, Francis. Hey, Francis. And then we have one more. We have Apollo Sistos, who is a dog. <gasps> we have a dog? Yeah, he's a dog. It's, we have he a is dog. the dog of Francis and Alberto. Oh, Apollo. Oh. I've met Apollo a couple times. That yeah. was fantastic. He bit my wife. <laughs> 
bite my wife, please. <laughs> I would love to send a postcard from Ringo Meekly to Apollo yeah. Sistos. I can't wait for them to be getting three postcards a month and one of them is for their dog. <laughs> I can't wait for everyone to just acknowledge what a joke our life and career <laughs> is. I feel like this is some sort of tax fraud that they've signed. <laughs> like the LA Meekly is now owned by a dog and we can't go to prison because of that. Partly owned by a dog. Minority shareholder. <laughs> yeah, we didn't mention that. All of our Patreon people get to vote in all of our stock meetings. Yeah. If they want a $10 tier where we just stand in the river for an allotted amount of time, fine. Hey, bring Let's it up it. at the next meeting. <laughs> but if you want to become one of our Patreon supporters, and we do really do appreciate it because we're independently produced, uh, yeah. we're struggling up against people like uh, Georgia Hardstark, <laughs> the queen of podcasting, Georgia Hardstarks. You can sign up on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can support us for $5 and over. We will give you a handwritten postcard every single month. Every single month. Let, let's get to so what do you have for us for your thing of the month from Well, this is March. a little bit controversial. First of all, I went on my anniversary at Joshua Tree and it was lovely. We went with a dog, which was a new experience for me because I couldn't climb the rocks because the dog was with us. But it's beautiful down there. Just toss him up there. <laughs> You'll figure it out. <laughs> okay, it is very controversial because it's not in LA proper. It is in the greater Los Angeles area. But I've been spending a little bit more time in Pomona, which I area that I love, city that I love. Wait, no. Is Pomona part of LA? It, LA County. It's like the what last city before you go to San Bernardino, I think. I'll put a, I'll put away my punishing Me rod. and Ada came up with an idea what's called a passport episode and we talk about things outside of LA for one episode or maybe we like, oh, I'd like to use my passport to talk about this thing. Uh, well, you only get one passport and I'd like to see your passport. <laughs> I need to see your passport. Look, don't take credit for that. I thought about that. <laughs> thing, okay. Anything that anyone's come up with, I've thought about <laughs> I've it thought already. Of already. <laughs> and the shareholders know this. I bring that up at every shareholder meeting <laughs> when people have good ideas. But I went to, we've been going to Pomona and there's two places I like to talk about. One is Micavacito, which is a, a Latin-owned coffee shop and they have like horchata lattes and Dalarosa lattes and they have Cafe de Oya, which I like a lot. It's a oh, little small. You once brought me a Cafe de Oya. Oh, Cafe de Oya. I brought you from Monarca Bakery, yeah, which I like really a lot. Good. Cinnamon coffee. Yeah. You're not going to get another one if you're asking. If this is I'm a, waiting. Uh, <laughs> you were supposed to ask me if I would like one. Do you not see my mouth going <laughs> gobble, gobble, give me something to drink? But walking around uh, their little Main Street, the historic Main Street area, there's a, a place called um, Cafe con Libros, Coffee with Books, and it's a really wonderful bookshop. Coffee with Liberty. Uh, you got a C in Spanish, right? I got a C. Um, a yes in Spanish? I got a yes, Vanny. He knows enough. <laughs> C, he knows Spanish. Yes plus, he knows Spanish. <laughs> the way to do improv in Spanish. <laughs> a C plus. It's a really great little bookstore in their little shopping area, but the back has a lending library. You can take a book for free, and if you would like to keep the book, let's say that you wanted the giant autobiography of Mark Twain, Volume 1, and you wanted to borrow it, and you decided at home, this is going to take 10 years to read it. They, <laughs> they ask for a small donation, but they had a lot of really great books in that lending library, and so I suggest if you're in the Pomona area, stop these two places you're taking your dad to get his vaccination in pomona today oh really that's happening today yeah we have to cut this short because i have to drive to pomona uh, your dad's fine you, know, <laughs> you can get another appointment right it's so easy and the way that i told him uh, we're getting the vaccine he's like why so that was a conversation and then he's like why can't we just go to dodger stadium i don't want 5g in my body yeah <laughs> my selling point was last week he saw a segment on tv about a place called tony's french dip in pomona <laughs> so my ploy was okay we'll go there which i found on the way over here that it closes at three o'clock so it's not going to happen because it's don't noon right now I'm going to, on the way, going to have to tell him. And it's going to so, be another uh, a third fight in the, the last two days about just trying to get my dad the vaccine, well, which is great. Actually, anywhere you get a vaccine, you get a free French dip with it. <laughs> you didn't it, know it's that? It's part of a new initiative. The so, 15 minutes you wait after you're getting 
the shot. It's yeah. French dip time. Eat. It's more of a competition those 15 minutes to see how many French dips <laughs> you can eat. More importantly than eradicating the virus, they're trying to find the French dip champion of all <laughs> Who is he? Is he French? Yeah, so that's that, my pa- Hey, Pomona mouth. counts. You can take your passport back for when you go to, oh, I went to Santa Barbara. Oh my God, care. I would never go to Santa Barbara. <laughs> I would listen, listen to me. I would literally never go to Santa Barbara. Oxnard maybe home of Jaime Hernandez, but nah, don't give me the Santa Barbara. Uh, I'll be at the Camarillo outlets next month. <laughs> I could talk at length about the outlets in Camarillo. At length. As a kid, it was always like a torturous thing of like, oh, we have to go to the outlets again. But now that I'm like, I need discounted clothes. Yeah. I'm like, I want to go to take my outlets, please. <laughs> um, take me to Citadel, please. <laughs> you want to hear what my thing from last month is? We, we gotta. It's on YouTube. It's You've probably seen this. It's like, uh, it's moving memes. It's a whole <laughs> website of moving memes. I can't believe that you're picking YouTube. Well, listen, no, I'm not picking YouTube. <laughs> You know my thing about it? It's something I use a lot for research. It's called Bing. Like I use Bing. My computer wouldn't know what to do with it. I can't go any places, so I thought I'd spice up my life, so I binged a few things. Tell me about YouTube. Well, it's not just anything I on know, YouTube. I know, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Tell me what your thing is. No jokes. <laughs> no this isn't the time or place. <laughs> we need a joke passport. It's a channel called 80s Life on YouTube. It was recommended to me by Carl Tart. Okay. Because it's a guy, he doesn't just do this, but he mostly does this. He goes around, he's from the valley, lives in the valley, and he goes around the valley basically being like, this used to be this sort of thing. And then he'd show like pictures. Oh, wow. So he does these driving tours around the valley of pointing out what used to be where and what it used to look like. And then he also does these uh, movie locations, not just the valley, but like around LA for the movie location. The one I watched was Mac and Me. Okay. Did you also, because of Hoopla, see Mac and Me this summer, didn't you? No, I saw Mac and Me because... It's a great film. Because I'm a student of cinema. (laughs) Kevin Smith once... Not not that Kevin Smith. Not that Kevin Smith. And Uh, also not that Carl Tart. Yeah, different Carl Tart. <laughs> a Carl Tart who's actually the codename of the actual Kevin Smith. <laughs> he knows how much I love E.T., so he gave me a DVD of Mac and Me. It's so funny. Which is the, if you don't know, it's the McDonald's. Ma- I don't know if it's officially made by McDonald's, I think but it, it has was, to be made by McDonald's. I don't know if it's... It's called Mac and Me. Yeah, and it's it's well known that they did sponsor it pretty yeah. much, and they had decision-making abilities yeah. in the movie. Yeah, Ronald McDonald was in, like, director's pants <laughs> with a wackier. burglarier. Sesame seed buns. (laughs) This is also part of our warm-up. It's a knockoff of E.T., but they they went around the filming locations. The one that was actually in the valley was that sort of industrial area. Mm -hmm. I think maybe along DeSoto or like near DeSoto and Chatsworth was where the crash happened where uh, Mac got loose. (laughs) That's pretty interesting. I would like to see it for like 70s exploitation movies. Yeah, he does a lot of... I mean, obviously he does a Karate Kid one. Yeah. But yeah, he has a lot of different things and it's it's fun to watch. Cool. Hey, maybe we'll, we'll have him on the show one day and by him I mean Ronald McDonald I mean <laughs> I mean Grimace I, by the big G Grimace <laughs> again I've done absolutely nothing in the past yeah. month so that's my thing of the month yeah the past it. month that's you've done nothing in the past month not yeah. with your entire life just the past month you've been rollerblading more yeah I mean, I guess that's kind of an LA thing. I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I've been rollerblading to uh, keep the pounds off, cool. to regain my figure. So if you see a, a dashing form doing crossovers, spinning backwards, a loud boombox playing <laughs> Queen music, you know I'm exercising in your neighborhood for 30 minutes a day. Please don't call the cops. Please I'm don't call the cops, you. even though I pass out on your lawn because I'm so exhausted. <laughs> I'm drinking from your water hose. Please don't call the cops. So let's get into this month. It's April Fools. But this month we're going to be doing some LA artists. Yeah. I had the one that I want to talk about who I'm not actually going to talk about today because I found out he was born in a different state and his work is very prolific in Los Angeles and I kind of, as I was doing research, fell out of love with... Uh, not that his art 
but the artist. Uh, you got to separate the two. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about this with Michael Jackson before that. <laughs> and I wanted to talk about an artist that I had like an actual love of his work and stuff. So I was trying to find somebody from LA that I really like, whose art I really loved. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, who else? Could I wanted to have. I only did one this month, and I wanted to do a second one. I'm like, who am I talking about? And as I'm talking about it, Peter Shire walked who's a really famous artist who grew up in Echo Park who I've always said hi to he walked by you my house yeah and he said hi and I said hi and we, we know each other <laughs> you, like in and, passing and you looked up at the heavens and you said no not that one not him though a but different I'm one and then literally sitting on my stairs drinking coffee wondering who I'm going to talk about and Peter Shire <laughs> yeah. walks by and says hi I'm like get out of here Peter Shire and then Renoir walked by <laughs> no a little <laughs> more mm, religious did I say that I have a midnight in Paris thing but at noon did I say that? Midnight at noon at Paris? Zero dark 30 in Paris? <laughs> Let's get into it. Please start. Let's get this party started. <laughs> Let's get this arty started. <gasps> I bet that's the first sentence. I bet you said it, and then it's also your first sentence. Well, it's not, we're not, you're not far off. Make mud, not mud war. My first one started <laughs> with, let's get this arty started. I was always interested in this only because of their name, the yeah. LA mud people. I know nothing about this. I only knew what they looked like. Uh-huh. I mean, who really, who really knows the mud people? And, and, and on a personal note, if I may peel back the curtain for a second, <laughs> who really knows what I'm saying right now? Where am I going with this? <laughs> the shadow, Lamont Cranston. <laughs> who really knows what a contemporary art is like? <laughs> the shadow knows. As I looked into it though, in, into the mud people, Yep. I realized that this was just a whole sort of pattern and lifestyle of the guy who is behind it. His okay. name is Mike E. Mullet. Not like the hockey hairdo. Oh, not like not like the hair uh, that I'm business slowly in the front party in the back. Not like yeah. uh, arty party in the back. Business in the front, art gallery opening in the back. <laughs> art gallery wine and cheese party in the back. <laughs> art gallery opening in the front, Banksy street art in the back. Mike Mullet, nice to meet you. So he's a local guy born in Pasadena. Okay. Um, also a, just a total weirdo. Like, come on. Oh, an art pers- I, I'm an sure artist. your person is also weird, but like both the people I'm talking about are pretty weird. Okay. One time a toad died in, his, here's an example. A toad died in his parents' pool and he took the dead toad and crucified it on a little cross in the middle of the street. Oh yeah, that's a sign of a serial killer. <laughs> Oh, oh, no. no, I solved the crime. The mud people. Now I get it because he buries his victims True in mud. Detective season four. Yeah, because they need to revisit Los Angeles because it went so well the first I can't time. believe we got our own season of True Detective and it sucked. Naturally, that led him to get his biology degree, crucifying <laughs> this toad at, here you go. Maybe you can go get one too, Cal Poly Pomona. That's oh, where wow. He, got his, uh, he crucified a French dip in the middle of the road also. <laughs> Nobody was mad about that though. Maybe you could just tell your dad about this artist being from Pomona oh, yeah. and he'll be excited. Hey, you know how you hate art? I'm going to talk about the mud people. But have you tried contemporary art? <laughs> Performative art? The uh, only artist you know is uh, Van Gogh. And you don't even know him. He's known as a reference you should use. Oh, okay. But after college, he took a year off to travel around Europe. This was the 1970s. So this yeah, is, to put this is in, the time to do it. If you remember Europe in the 1970s. You were uh, probably the Beatles. You, you're probably a redneck. <laughs> um, he went off to travel around Europe and something got unlocked in his mind. Art is good. Yeah, that's what he came to discover. Somebody who grows up in Southern California and needs to go to Europe to be like, I like art. Art is good. What's a museum? <laughs> is that like where you buy surfboards? So when he came back to LA, <laughs> he got a job in a paint store. Okay. So he didn't quite get it. He got a job in a paint store, but he kind of did it like, oh, I got all this paint. I'm going to start painting. You're right. So he started making paintings. He took classes and he hated all of them, even though he was actually selling some of his work. But then he unlocked something new in his mind. A trash truck entry. Cue the trash truck. <laughs> 
He got a job in a trash store <laughs> and he decided art is trash. <laughs> so he decided poetry is good. Okay. I like poetry now. So he quit painting and he took up poetry. And that was when he discovered the Dada movement, right. which Dadaism was an art a movement that was sort of a reaction to the horrors of World War the First one. It was mm-hmm. just all about just like crazy nonsense chaos that usually had a deeper meaning behind it or didn't. <laughs> Dada is surrealism, right? They have two different names. So maybe they're two different yeah, things maybe that it's like, fall under yeah. the same banner maybe one is like we have intention and meaning and the other one's like no sure for you but not for me maybe i'm just <laughs> stuff to be stuff i'm just thinking about behind that is all of these traumatized people from world that made it out of world war one who still think about sleeping in trenches yeah and then went this is a pig who wears a hat <laughs> it's not a reaction to trauma it's just a pig wearing a hat what else can you <laughs> there's get no that? meaning don't try to look yeah, into don't it try to look don't into try it. to define me like as if i'm, I'm on the west or the <laughs> east i don't i'm not a, yeah i don't know if it was the same thing but it certainly was weird just kind of crazy yeah. stuff so this was when he started getting into found object art of making sculptures out of basic basically trash he would find around Los Angeles. But in 1976, he decided to make his art a little more performative. So he bought a 1964 Volkswagen bus, which he called the alternative art vehicle, and would write on the side of it a question of the month about art or society or culture, and then just drive it around town, and people would see this A little like a Dennis Woodruff, but I don't want a job from that. Yeah, he wasn't trying to promote himself. He was trying to promote enlightenment. (laughs) So there's a number I can call? (laughs) Will you hire me? Yeah. <laughs> Examples of some of these questions. Is any question better than no question? Oh. Why circumcision? What is the square root of existence? Whoa. Is there life on earth? <laughs> these were the sorts of things he was driving, which if I saw that, I would, you know, like, come on. Yeah. Get out of your own head. But it is the 70s. So actually right. we were impressed by this. Yeah. Steve Martin was hot at the time. I get it. That was the sort of stuff. Kind of pretentious. Each question would stay on the bus for about a month. And he did this for seven years. And he even started sending out postcards of the bus to a mailing list he had of over 1500 people wow. so he was Doing i way mean better than we are yeah come on one of our patreon people is a dog and we can't get 1500 people there's a lot of dogs in this city <laughs> uh, so he would just he would send these postcards to him asking them to send back questions for the bus right so this was when he started getting into what's known as mail art which okay. is basically just art intended to be mailed to people which oh I not guess like w- a man made the art <laughs> well <Kidding>. both <laughs> it's kind of like dada and surrealism it's a subcategory of Male art is male art. So I guess we're male artists. I told you. I've been saying this. Put on your resume. Put on your beret and put it on your resume. (laughs) Let's just have this disclaimer here that it's not easy to describe art. And describing contemporary art is especially hard. Especially without visual examples. Exactly. What else do we have but non-visual examples (laughs) on this podcast? So as part of this male art, he made about 50 different books of art that were kind of art themselves that he would mail out to people who wanted them. Okay. If that makes any sense. Then in 1980, he along with fellow artist Patty Sue Jones and Neil Taylor put on Dada Fest LA, which was a, a six-week festival across several venues of Dada performances. Mm-hmm. They had a parade, they had dinners, a found object art show at the Otis School, and a performance in the Mental Hospital in Norwalk. Oh, wow. Which, I, again, I can't... How can you explain a contemporary art live performance? Yeah. Except like this. You just hear tapping. Oh, I get it. And me crying. It's so beautiful. I can't describe 
describe it. It's so beautiful. It's so frightening. <laughs> We're HP Lovecraft when it comes to describing art. <laughs> so it's indescribably gorgeous. Um, Cop out. <laughs> in 1987, he also founded the ZTZU Gallery, Zitzu, I don't know, uh, which seemed to be inside the Otis Building that LA Weekly called the ugliest gallery in Los Angeles. They did group shows there that were either free or cost 99 cents, and after eight months, they were told to leave. <laughs> Class act. You can't throw out art, man. <laughs> art, this is part of the performance. Dig now it, the, man. Now the city's my gallery. <laughs> Will you hire me? <laughs> Need food. Can uh, I crash on your couch? Is this worth pursuing? <laughs> Mike Mullet also did recurring segments on local public access shows, The Loose Leaf Report and New Wave Theater, which was a really big deal in its day that I think yeah. that was another part of this episode. I kept reading about things of like, oh, we got to cover this. We got to cover this. The, the New Wave Theater seemed to be a really important public access show yeah. in LA, but I know nothing about it. But probably Mike Mullet's most successful artistic venture was not the thing I came here to talk about, but a group he formed called The Lost Tribe in 1985. And it's kind of hard to really pinpoint what exactly this was if it was a band or just a performance troupe or just like a poetry collective uh -huh. but it was kind of all of that okay. again hp lovecraft is back <laughs> he considered himself a punk poet okay and the lost tribe was sort of punk art and were in the whole la punk scene okay but i'm not sure if it was a band if they did music ever or just like existed as art yeah it i mean like there's not really videos of this right and again like i'm giving you a secondhand description of how this <laughs> undescribable thing was described to me yeah so he started it with a couple of guys he met at an open mic named doug knott who was a poet and s.a griffin who was a poet yeah. <laughs> and an actor who went on to be on melrose place repeatedly wow and days of our lives for a while so the lost tribe performed around town and even got onto the gong show oh and actually one doing their slobs in suits number which again there's not footage of the gong show so like i, I have no touchstone for what was happening <laughs> yeah. with these people they also ran for president the three of them yeah. as one person as one running person. for president and in 1986 they all got married to each other everybody's a critic <laughs> they all got married to each other and had a wedding party where they gave all the guests cake and money sandwiches oh my god i love describing art that i would hate <laughs> um eventually they added another poet to the group named scott wanberg and they rebranded themselves as the karma bums but car who did pretty much the same thing and released a book of poetry called twisted cadillac a spoken word odyssey they broke up in 2009 but a big fan of theirs was the man who would be king vigo mortensen oh vigo Morrison was involved in the punk scene. He married uh, Exine from X. Really? Yeah, that's crazy. After with John Doe. Could have had a king. Could, she could have been, she could have been a, been a queen. queen. He even funded a documentary on the group in 1998, which I was thinking, Vigo Mortensen had enough money in 1998 <laughs> to fund a documentary. What was he in before Lord of the Rings? Like what, to give him that much money? I, you know, I honestly don't know. <laughs> he was Strider. <laughs> the Mike Mullet project that drew me in here started in 1989. It was meant to be a one-time performance at what they kept referring to as an African reggae club which i don't know what that means either it's indescribable <laughs> it's like <laughs> reggae. what a reggae club is is it a club that plays reggae who'll know who'll know but what's an african reggae club <laughs> like I can, reggae I, from africa what? there's reggae in africa of course what do you mean of course reggae's from jamaica yeah but it can exist it, there's reggae in california there's reggae all over the place stop it no you there isn't it out. <laughs> that's it out. ska and you know it <laughs> 
<laughs> they have too many instruments to be reggae. There's no horns in <laughs> reggae. Mike Mullet and a few friends took the inspiration for it from a group doing a similar thing in Colorado. But what they did was they stripped down to loincloths, basically loincloths, yeah. covered their bodies in mud and put on these giant plaster of Paris heads and then got on stage and they just slowly wander around the club silently examining everything and moving very deliberately. Okay. Again, another thing with contemporary art, like when I first see it, I'll be like, this is dumb. I don't get it. Yeah. And then when anyone explains like what they're trying to do, I'm like, oh, that's that's beautiful. It's it's the, yeah, I'm changed. <laughs> I'm a moved person. I'm the uh, same way where it always sounds like a self-serving prank. And then someone's and then like, they, well, what they're actually trying to point out is I'm like, oh, that's it's almost like genius. It's person. almost like the explanation is the art. Because when yeah. I'll look at it, like, what do you come on? Put on a suit over that mud. Keep the plaster of Paris head. I like that. But yeah, put no, a suit. I have no problem with that. This was the whole performance. They would just silently move around. Nothing else was happening. And Mike Mullen, Mullet, Mike Mullet, how did I forget his last name? Mullet, my preferred haircut. He <laughs> liked doing it so much that he decided to do it again and then again and again and again until it became a dedicated group of people who would all do this, not only in performance venues, but just out around the city. Right. So now, why did they do this and why did he enjoy it so much? And again, explaining contemporary art is like trying to describe a dream that someone else described to me. Yeah. So I'll use quotes and ideas I got from other people and okay. try to synthesize it into what the LA mud people are all about. Okay. Mullet describes them as living sculptures and that what they do are non-performances, which is not helpful at all. Yeah. There's the obvious comparison to be drawn to the actual rituals of some groups who live in New Guinea, mm-hmm. which can be a little problematic yes. and he does acknowledge that, but he also doesn't make a point out of that. Like it's not, he's not, it's nothing to do with that, even though it is yeah <laughs> we're lovecrafting again <laughs> he wants to challenge people with seeing a culture out of context but it also isn't an anthropological thing like it's not what gets more to the heart of it i think is that he says we're an antidote to the speed stress goals and time in this urbanizing society they okay. move painfully slow while the whole world moves at its normal fast speed around them they say nothing or give you any indication of what they're doing so it's on you to figure out who they are and maybe not think why they are moving so slowly but why are we moving so quickly so mullet likes doing it because he says it forces him to slow down and see and examine his surroundings and feel what he's feeling inside it forces him to just let go of everything else for a little bit the mud people are happy and feel liberated without having to worry about the concept of time and hurrying and stress he says we don't have to do anything we just are Huel Hauser had them on his show and was also a big fan of them saying it's it's doing us all a great service because they hold a mirror up to ourselves and show us very clearly how we deal with each other or how we deal with people who are different than we are okay brilliant beautiful a- absolutely no. Huel Hauser Huel Hauser couldn't have said it better <laughs> why are they moving so slow you're not gonna take your clothes off and put on mud are you sleepwalking jeez golly golly shazam <laughs> always he evolves just, into uh, gym neighbors. <laughs> I like gym neighbors. Hewlhauser's there. <laughs> They've also, uh, the Mud People have been in Time Magazine and National Geographic in 1992. Oh, wow. They've gone around Venice, Hollywood, the Convention Center, Bunker Hill, Melrose, Old Town Pasadena. They've been in the LA River like you want us to do. Mm-hmm. Joshua Tree, which uh, you can't get over, yeah. and Santa Barbara, which you'll never go to. Yeah. They've been involved in over 75 events, including, of course, the Dude Parade. It seems... The Dada Parade? The d- 
the dead average, <laughs> where it's just a bunch of dads walking down the street waving at their kids. It seems like they don't even always do it as a performance, though. They kind of just like get together like a book club or people going fishing, but instead they get naked and cover themselves in mud and walk around in the wilderness. Yeah. So it's just sort of a thing people, these people do. And they're just everyday people also. They're, some of them are waiters, they're accountants, they're librarians. So not only might you happen to run across them doing this out on the street randomly one day, but you also might actually know someone who does this. Mullet prefers to use mud from LA, specifically from Silver Lake or Hollywood because he likes the color. Most often they use potter's clay from an art store because, I mean, come on now. How many times do you have to get yelled at by the police to stop digging up mud around Silver Lake <laughs> before you just go to an art store? That being said, it's a pretty small group of people. They've only been about 50 LA mud people ever, one of whom was George DiCaprio, who two times brought his son along in Venice to do it with him, and 15 year old. Leonardo DiCaprio had a great time wow. being a mud person. I have a famous son too. I mean, in I my never story. met him. I I never, <laughs> His name's Jack Kennedy. Heard of him? <laughs> and I'd like you to meet him. He's your son too. <laughs> in addition to this, Mullet also does sculptures these days made of stuff that he finds in the river, the LA River, or just in different parts of town or the country. He mostly now does these giant balls made out of this stuff that he finds. And when I saw them, I thought the same way I do when I see most contemporary art was, huh, interesting. But then when it was explained to me, again, I was like, that's beautiful. <laughs> I must own one. Can it, I give you a check or something? Something? I don't know. I, I, can I just hand you cash? Um, I've seen the balls there in front of Target. Kidding. They don't look like much other than a giant ball of trash, but they're really, they're time capsules of a moment in a culture or a society. An example, again, of like, this guy's a genius. Yeah. Uh, he made one of trash he found along the Mexican border of blankets and food and things like that, that, that showed what people who were trying to get into the United States oh, had wow. with them to survive in the most desperate moment of their lives, wow. which is like, wow, this is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> this old serape is so beautiful. <laughs> he says anything and everything can be beautiful or interesting and be worth something. The simplest things such as a leaf, a wet fingerprint on a brick, a piece of shiny paper in the wind. He actually had an exhibit of this stuff at Moore York in 2019. Oh, wow. And Mullet pays for all this with his job as being a substitute teacher for preschool to sixth grade. So love it. if you want to become an LA mud person yourself, just slather yourself up with some fresh mud from Hollywood and head on down to the preschool and hope you find him. <laughs> Real fast. I'm here to be a mud person. <laughs> hey kids. Do you like contemporary art? <laughs> so that that's the Mike Mullet and the LA mud people. And it does seem like he, he's very open about like, you want to join us? Come on. So we could go be, uh, hey. I'd keep my clothes on, obviously. Yeah. I'd wear some sort of mud suit. <laughs> but anyone can be a mud person if you that want to. That sounds very interesting. I wouldn't do it, but I would like to see. I'd freak out if I saw them. Yeah. I'm not sure if you are familiar with Frank Romero's work. Oh, I got a cramp in my foot. <laughs> that's how familiar I am. <laughs> my body starts reacting. <laughs> What's his name again? I, I couldn't hear you over the cramp in my foot. We're going to be talking about Frank Romero, who if you think well, I've never seen one single Frank Romero piece, you have prove it any angelino and most tourists if you've ever been stuck on the 101 freeway by alameda outside of downtown meaning if you've just been on the 101 freeway through downtown the walls are adorned with murals now there's one of a, a like a really vibrant mural with cars in a line the colorful hearts above each car palm trees red mountains blimps and a sunset sky that is frank romero's mural titled going to the olympics he painted it in 1984 uh, and corresponds okay. with the alley olympics it is did he do the one that where it's like a bunch of different people running no I'm thinking of like eight different murals. You I, are where I'm, and they're that I've different. only seen of like glancing briefly. <laughs> the one that has a bunch of like childlike drawn cars. They're very like curvy okay, yeah. and bouncy and so. not to scale. <laughs> 
and completely not going to be approved by the, <laughs> by the people at GM. Ford will not say yes to this. <laughs> Frank Romero is one of those pioneers of Chicano Alley art. His art is really colorful. It's dominated by expressive wavy lines. So there isn't a lot of stillness in what he paints. They always feel like they're fluid. There's a lot of movement in them. Even the cards he draws, like I said, there aren't a lot of straight edges or corners. It's very curvy. They're, you know, He draws lowriders and old cars. So a lot, lots of curves, lots of round shapes to them. Lots of palm trees, lots of cars, his art. And many of his works are steeped in Chicano history and LA history. He draws narrative scenes, which I think has him stand out from his peers a okay. little bit more. Frank Romero was born in July of 1941 in Boyle Heights, another hometown hero. His mother was 14 and his roots... His mother is... Sorry. <laughs> God. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> story almost got really sad. His mother was one of 14 okay. and his roots into... Uh, one of 14 school. 14 year olds. A four, yeah, they're all uh, whatever, 14 plits. They're fortnight <laughs> <laughs> So his roots go into Bullheights very deep. As he said, I had hundreds of cousins. Everybody in the neighborhood was a relative. For Thanksgiving, they would sit 15 at a time at a table and oh they would God. just eat in shifts all day at my grandmother's house. Wait, my they, would eat, house. they would do Thanksgiving in shifts? Yeah, we did that growing up. I was about to say that. You what, did that? In, my, in the house minute. that I grew up in, we would do thanksgiving and christmas so it would be shifts. Like, so it would be like okay the galvans and the the whoever yeah at three o'clock who will reconvene yeah and it'll well, be we'll, the Gonzaleses. Yeah, people will be making a second dinner so, so crazy everybody partying right now and drinking in the yard just know <laughs> oh, in about an hour okay so the people wouldn't just come at different no no times. no you'd be all Tell me about your childhood <laughs> I was one of maybe 350 people, <laughs> and that's just one side of the family. Yeah, that was just the kids' table. It's crazy because I used to. My house used to be like the main family hub. My house is small now that I'm. I'm still in that house. I'm like, how did we fit 70 people? We would like that's throw so the furniture. Like we would burn yeah. the furniture and be like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna have to tear down this wall. Yeah, we're, we're gonna it's- have to Gorbachev <laughs> this thing so that we can have an American Christmas. <laughs> that sounds like fun, though. Yeah, it sounds overwhelming, but also like fun. It's very nice to. I mean, you and 30. Yeah. Rec- Cousins are playing hide and seek. So there's so many kids that there's not even enough places to hide. (laughs) It's all seek, (laughs) run and seek. His stories of growing up in LA are they're so LA because it's not like the kind of Bradbury like I know Clifford Clinton and Burns and Allen. It's more like I would take the red card of the Warner Brothers Theater in Whittier to see a movie for ten cents, or I'd go to the Joy Theater in Boyle Heights where where he said it was so noisy in there with the children that the owners would turn off the movie every fifteen minutes Ah. and tell them to shut up, which also sounds like a childhood memory. I will turn this movie around. (laughs) I would start this movie over. I will play this movie in reverse. I'll Whenever- play the news. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Don't make me play these old Vietnam <laughs> war clips again. When you see like a Fellini movie or yeah. something and it's everyone in Italy in one movie theater and they're all just like doing disgusting things in the back and throwing, you know, whatever Italians yeah. eat at the screen. Just eating like turkey legs, full on giant <laughs> meals in the theater. Romero was drawing and painting from an early age and as he got older, he stuck to it. At 15, he was studying with Millard Sheets, which I forgot to look up if that's a person or a technique. That sounds familiar. <laughs> he was studying with his great master, Nylon Sheets. Uh, he was studying with Milar Sheets at the Otis Art Institute. Now, what I can't fi- figure out is... The second time the Otis has come up in well, this episode. Well, okay. I don't know if they mean the Otis College of Art and Design or if they mean... I read somewhere. I don't know if this... I couldn't find out if this is true. If there was an Otis Art Institute, which became Cal State LA. Uh, well, did, I remember... It sounded like he did both, actually. I, re- I remember when we talked about the LA Times because Otis... Yeah, Otis Ot- It was Otis's Chandler. house. When he died, it got donated to the city or whatever. Right. And they turned it into an art school, his old house. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Park. 
Mark. Yeah, couldn't find out if... Well, eventually he goes to Kelsey So either way, he's at Kelsey <laughs> I know he goes to Otis. Um, what I'm saying is I don't know if the Otis he goes to becomes Kelsey or if he went to Otis Another and Another character from Andy Griffith. Just Barney Grumble. And then sometimes I'll be watching this. Wait, Barney like, Grumble or Barney Gumble? I thought it was Grumble. Barney Gumble. Is it Gumble? I thought it was Grumble. Grumble. How many times about, have I said his last name? Are still talking about Grimace? Are we on, on to Mac and Me again? Yeah, we're talking about Mac and Me. Anyways, so he goes to Kelsey in 1959. And there he pretty quickly, like freshman year, meets his friend and future collaborator, Carlos Almaraz, who has a Netflix documentary about him out right now, which I haven't seen yet. At Cal State LA, oh my God, it's the same as April last year. I know, the wind. At least it's warm, though. So at Cal State LA, he took fine art classes, and while he was there, he got recommended to a graphic designer named Lou Danziger from the Arts Center College of Design. And from there, he was sent out to work with the iconic art couple, Charles and Ray Eames. Oh. Yeah, who are credited very, as the developers of the modern very era. Very interesting. Keep those names in mind for later in this episode. They uh, are pretty much credited as the developers of modern era furniture and modern in the art sense like stylish sleek and simplistic as well as like modern art graphic design tiles and architecture textiles and architecture eames chairs isn't that a thing we have a whole section at the library of just eames chairs just chairs yeah they were working out of their office in venice and for the eames romero helped with graphic design including materials for a thomas jefferson exhibition film titles posters and designs for an exhibit on the history of the computer for ibm Uh, he developed skills and discipline working for the eames also ibm is going to come back later also but what do you mean a thomas jefferson exhibition i have no idea he was in an interview talking about like i did a thomas jefferson and i couldn't figure out what that meant he was also an artist right the president president slave owner artist. <laughs> president slave. proud his, father his name should have been president slave owner president. happy birthday president slave owner unfortunately not narrowing it down <laughs> he also said among his duties quote i had to take care of ray eames she was eccentric they were strange people very elitist i love this but they were hot potatoes <laughs> I is have, that a compliment or an, I or an insult? no idea. I really have fallen in love with Frank Romero. <laughs> Just on those stuff he talks about and how he talks about it. I don't want to speak out of turn about these people, but they're, a, but they're a prime rib dinner. Hot potato can't be a good thing. I don't know. Because it sounds what's, kinda, what's, the, what's the game hot potato is that we keep yeah, tossing you, keep you back and forth? Because it's hurting you. Yeah. So they hurt him. They're abusive. I want to say that it's something gross. I bet they were into some weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Eames French fries in places. Um, French fries in places you could never imagine. From working with the Eames, he went on to work for a man named Tom Wilkes uh, doing design work for A&M Records where he said he met Karen Carpenter who crafted all of the Eames chairs yeah Karen Carpenter little, I always call her little Karen little. Carpenter <laughs> he often says that working for Eames was nice but it was he keeps calling things elitist he says I was too hoity hot potatoes there are a couple hot potatoes it's hoity toity which yeah. is how you play hot potato and he talks about like high design and elitist and I imagine he's, I mean he does say it as a, it's a negative thing but when he talks about working with musicians and entertainment for A&M he sounds more satisfied with his work just sort of like I'm working with regular people who are just like musicians musicians at like a record Karen label Karen Carpenter sounds a little more chill than like a Ray Eames I guess to compare to, to I, women um, which is also was a shock to me of Ray's a woman yeah I, I know I was like what are they like brothers I, I, yeah, I, I certainly can't be gay and she certainly can't be a woman so they must be brothers it seems like making art in the elitist school methods was doing nothing for Romero who wanted to stray from academic art and start expressing the environment around him in new ways at the end of the 60s Almaraz and Romero moved to New York I don't know why other than just see Rosemary's Baby Live or whatever. And then by 1970, they came back. Oh, let, let's do our like 60s montage. Oh my God. Uh, Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit's playing. I, I have almost the same exact Make joke Make Peace in my Not next War, thing. a photo of JFK, a photo of Martin Luther King, a 60 millimeter shot of soldiers in Vietnam, rose colored circle glasses, <laughs> civil rights marches, a group of shaggy dressed 20 year olds sitting in the cloud of smoke, a guy doing a peace symbol. The national lawn is packed. The national lawn is packed. A girl crying at Kent State. The Beatles are dressed like Captain Crunch. We're all caught up. <laughs> Suddenly the Beatles are no more. <laughs> They're playing Windy on top of a rooftop and we're caught up. And that's been the 60s. <laughs> 
Coming up next, the 70s. <laughs> Can we cue the footage of, of like denim, of dirty denim pants? Weird mustaches and sideburns. Easy rider clips. Can everyone just stop showering for like a week? We gotta get some new footage of the 70s. Can we get some of Robin Williams's body hair? We need it for the extras. Can we get a shot of the Manson girls walking down the court hallroom singing in dresses? And we're caught up. And now the 80s. <laughs> Through the 60s in LA, the Chicano movement was starting, as we discuss in many episodes, arranging from protests and marches to the results of the Zoot Suit riots. Let's just catch up real quick. For this better, footage is not as much fun. This is, you're going to want to sit down. There were walkouts, school walkouts for mm-hmm. better education for... Um, brown berets. Brown berets happened. Chicano moratorium took place in 1970. Uh, that was a scene of Ruben Salazar's death. The Zoot Suit riots of the 40s solidified the Latino youth to form a movement, and that's in the 60s becomes pretty much the Chicano movement above as a whole. It's like an umbrella term for any kind of brown pride that you right. have. Uh, it and was I in this climate lot. that many Latino artists would create works that started to stand out, and this was the Chicano movement. So in 1973, Carlos Almaraz introduced Frank to Gilbert Magu Sanchez Lajun. What's uh, his second name? Uh, quote, Magu. It's a great nickname. It is. It is a Gilbert cool Magu. Magu, who was publishing a magazine called Chisme Arte, which was a magazine for Chicano culture. Gilbert brought in Robert Beto de la Rocha. These guys would form the art collective known as Los Four, which I had never heard of before, but now I'm like, I'm fascinated by their work. <laughs> Early on, what they would mostly do is go to Romero's Angelino Heights home and argue. Um, here's a fun tidbit. This is what I was talking about earlier. Beto de la Roca of the Los Four has a son named Zach. Zach de la Rocha. Who's that? The lead singer of Rage Against the Machine. Whoa, really? Yeah, huh. I didn't know that before doing research. And it all comes together. And, make, and Rage was... Against the Machine makes all the more sense now. I was reading a little bit about him. I won't concentrate on the other three of Los Four as much, but he has like a nervous breakdown right after they get successful. Hey, like, that pretty com- much burns all his uh, drawings and stuff. And that's that's in the cards for us. <laughs> the second we get successful, one of <laughs> us is having a breakdown. Not, I will not handle it Maybe well. we'll both have a breakdown then. <laughs> We've done everything in pairs so far anyways. Los Four emphasized the importance of dealing with subjects relevant to Chicano life and also railed against the racial barriers in the art scene. So the art scene in LA felt like an elitist white world. So what Los Four and other Chicano groups such as Osco and East Los Streetscapers, what they did was turn to the murals and street art, which defined Latino art in Los Angeles at the time. I mean, mm. pretty much like throughout. That's why yeah. it's such a big part of the movement. Murals and street art really are the most accessible and powerful again for me anyways like growing up driving between city terrace to echo park was like driving through an art gallery <laughs> like i was exposed to so many different sort of narrative drawings and different styles mm-hmm. just like driving between two places they worked on public places they sometimes use acrylic sometimes spray cans sometimes they, they worked on ofrendas which are the dios de los muertas murals it's said that beto de la rocha and another artist named gronk are credited with reviving the day of the dead tradition in modern los angeles gronk gronk isn't that a football player's nickname i have no gronk? idea gronkowski oh hey. gronkowski you see that catch you made let's take a break from all this frilly art stuff and have some pigskin talk right now <laughs> our new segment where we toss the pigskin pigskin tossers that's what we'll call this that's the 19th down did i do it right washington <laughs> redskins that's a great name how do i do a blitz i'm playing madden and that's been toss the pigskin around with greg and daniel that's on the been... verge of a mental breakdown <laughs> and that's been another hail mary movement four hail marys <laughs> So they, these two, Beto and Gronk, are pretty much credited with reviving, reestablishing Day of the Dead in L.A. Sure. The two decided to celebrate Day of the Dead by dressing up in traditional skeleton costumes and going to Evergreen Cemetery. The tradition started off small and was described as, quote, a few weird artists doing a weird thing, <laughs> but it continued on. Wait a minute. I know skeletons and all that stuff yep. is part of it, but dressing up like a skeleton yeah, is also do that. part of it? Like, no, like, like a glow-in-the-dark like, No, sort of like painting your face 
Okay, I thought you with meant different like, designs. I thought you meant like a child's pajama costume of like what I tend turn to the wear. At the, uh, the, yeah, what you wear. <laughs> what I what I've worn to a live show for us yes, in your children's pajamas. <laughs> Los four became Los five when Judith Hernandez joined them a little bit later in the seventy or mid seventies, I guess. As well as being a Chicana painter, she was also an illustrator for Atlan Journal and was the illustrator for the first volume of poetry by the celebrated Mexican American poet Alurista. Los four, led by Luhan, was also having their own Chicano art shows that they would put on themselves, and groups like Osco Los and East Los Streetscapers were responsible for bringing Chicano street art and Mexican folk art traditions to the mainstream art world. In 1974, UC Irvine exhibited work from Los Four, but they went even bigger when LACMA and the Oakland Museum had a show displaying the work of Lujan, De La Rocha, Omraz, and Romero. Uh, this was a huge landmark show. They like Every time I read about it, people are like, the landmark show? Oh, the biggest <laughs> show that you've ever done. Like It was a huge show, apparently, in 1974, and it really seemed to legitimize their work in the art world and their movement, their art movement as a whole. So like that was their big moment. Yeah, once you get into LACMA. That's it, baby. Yeah. The group Once kept- you get into LACMA, you can't get me out of LACMA. <laughs> you just try to get me out of LACMA. Oh, you're going to knock it down? Okay, that's probably the best way to do it. <laughs> I'm still there. I live in the Death Star now. Come find me. I'm the Phantom of the Death Star, <laughs> which is a movie I would <laughs> die to see. Yeah. <laughs> that's the new Star Wars TV series. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Also a guy in a mask. Go on. Also a guy in a mask. The group kept working and painting. One of their murals adorns the walls at Ramona Gardens. In 1979, Frank Romero was hired as the design director of the Los Angeles Community Redevelopment Agency, which we brought up, I think, last episode to talk about... James M. Wood. He designed the first section of what was called the Broadway Sidewalk Project, which means between 3rd and 8th on Broadway in downtown, you could see a lot of Romero's work, which includes a couple murals and mostly tile work on the sidewalk, which he finished, he started in 79, ends in, or he finishes in 1985. Not all the works are Romero's, but he led the project, which means it's all kind of approved by him, and uh-huh. he like foresaw everything. It includes the incredible tile work on the sidewalk outside of Clifton's Cafeteria, created by the Venetian Terrazzo and Mosaic Company in Los Angeles. I think he might have had had some sections of that done which he designed but i don't know what part most of this info comes from a page on publicartinla.com a more of the sidewalk project was an ornate french inspired design which graces the front of the la theater 609 south broadway the zigzag and chevron designs embellishes the front of the eastern columbia building at 849 to 859 broadway the mcdonald's at 330 south broadway has a thing in front of it and the all right shopping arcade which i couldn't find any information i probably still there i don't know if it's called anything on 4th. He did work for the St. Vincent Square as well as a sidewalk project. The thing we talked to that like weird huh. that weird little cul-de-sac or whatever. That fantasy land. Fantasy land. In 1984 to prepare for the incoming of the world to our little <laughs> itty bitty city. Uh, artists were commissioned the to. Itty bitty, he joined the itty bitty city committee? He did. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Leave a microphone. I need it. Artists were commissioned to create murals on the 101 freeway through downtown LA and Frank Romero was among them. I don't know why I never thought about this but they had to paint them while the freeway was open which would drive me <laughs> yeah. The people, the artists were like, yeah, you kind of just zone out for a while. (laughs) Which is not a good thing to do when you're standing on the freeway. No, it's not. Among the muralists was Judith Baca, who would go on to paint the Great Wall mural around here. She painted the woman in Marathon. Willie Heron, which is another fantastic Chicano muralist, was responsible for the wrestler mural that's there. By 1984, it's so interesting. This is 10 years after Los Four formed and Chicano muralism sort of took off. The city chose murals painted by some artists of that movement to represent the city to visitors, which I find is very important. Frank's mural going to the Olympics I always enjoyed that because it was on just like a kid's level seeing the mural I was in a line of cars looking at a mural of a line of cars <laughs> and it looked like I was looking into a and better then, life which is like a pink sky and there's blimps and all the cars are cool <laughs> and then you look forward and there's someone throwing up over <laughs> that bridge Frank explained 
it, it represents the auto culture of Los Angeles in a joyous procession of cars, one of each for the Olympic rings, which I never thought about before. One <laughs> car for each of the Olympic rings. Now's a good time to talk about his most prominent paintings. I got to see them. Mola had a show in uh, Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach in 2017, had a, a show of it called Dreamland, and I was there for that. I didn't know a lot about Frank Romero other than the mural that I liked on the freeway, but seeing his work up close on display really made me a fan of his. He calls himself a historian because his paintings are scenes, like these narrative moments. There's a painting of a bonfire called Bonfire at Evergreen Playground, which he painted in 2016. This depicts, I love this, and I'll get to it, but he says, this is quoting him, that depicts something from the 40s, 50s. Every Halloween, the city of Los Angeles would build a pyre of wood and then burn the whole thing to the ground. Every Halloween, which was not in any of the papers when I did that Halloween episode. Like the Wicker Man? Like the Wicker Man. Was someone inside? The mayor um, was inside every year? Now he's saying you wouldn't do that now because of fire hazards and pollution. That's incredible, though. More of the story that they would do that than the actual painting. I but like, no what idea. was on the pyre? J- uh, just like disobedient kids. <laughs> Cops. I don't know. <laughs> Anybody caught egging a house? <laughs> There's a mural in downtown. The big famous one, I think it's the Victory Building, that has, um, oh my god, what's his name? Mexican actor. A library named after him. It was my first library. Anthony Quinn. Thank you. Anyways, he didn't paint that mural. The mural to the left of that painting. Frank has a mural called Nino and Caballo, and it depicts a nude boy riding a saddleless horse under a full moon as an expression of joy and freedom. And after being locked up for a whole year, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> the second I'm fully vaccinated, I'm taking <laughs> off my horse. clothes. Saddleless horse. The first full moon, <laughs> which is when you're most protected from COVID. Naked on that horse. First horse I see. <laughs> and I see a lot of horses. To get to his more narrative ones that really were striking, he did the death of Ruben Salazar is depicted, police firing into the Silver Dollar Bar. He wasn't at the moratorium because he was like three years old. But the story, as it did with most of us, really deeply affects us. Me. The colors are muted, but there are so many colors. It's got a really simple charm, but it's depicting something violent and it's painted really colorful and playful. And that's sort of Romero's style Mm -hmm. is to take something, make it vibrant, but it's like a a, a scene of horror. Like Quentin Tarantino. Like Quentin Tarantino. Another painting is The Arrest of the Poleteros, which takes place at Echo Park Lake, where today there was another (laughs) showdown. There's another arrest going on. Yeah. So it's a painting of police arresting and chasing street vendors with a very colorful background almost the same story another one is the arrest of the taco wagon and an attack on culture and so he has this whole like police brutality series mm-hmm. how a police attack mexicans and mexican americans and latinos and that's really what he concerns himself with for these bigger narrative pieces i like the phrase taco wagon yeah i like, a, I like the idea of a wagon like yeah. an old-timey wagon yeah like he comes into town ringing a bell yeah, taco, yeah, yeah. the yeah. taco wagon's here and there's like uh strings hanging between apartment buildings and everyone's got clothes yeah. drying but they're all italian for some reason yeah but for, they love tacos and natalie wood plays everybody <laughs> natalie wood and the greek guy who plays bernardo <laughs> another painting is teatro campesino which i don't speak spanish which uses a, l- a less colorful palette and instead goes for darker colors but with like a yellow stage at the center it offers like as i read offers a bright beacon on the left is the painting is depicted has like a flag of the united farm workers of america just hanging on the wall to the right is the virgin mary they'll also come up later hey, and re- so will the virgin mary both are important symbols aiding in the creation of the chicano identity and the struggle for justice the la times has summed up romero as saying it's like car culture mayan and mexican mythology tension and violence in the inner city los angeles these are a few of the things that make up romero's image bank through and through romero is a kid of the city he's quoted as saying i like la it's easy to live here i live in france half the year but that's a different situation i've been in la so long and i've done so much i'm the kid who helped save the watts towers from mayor yorty i was 19 and i was hired to sit in front of the watts towers to collect money for the cable test to prove that the <laughs> towers could stand <laughs> so like all of it and he's still deeply rooted in la history and his art reflects that and i'm a big fan of his work again it takes like a quote from a newspaper to explain an artist <laughs> for, before i'm like wow <laughs> 
powerful stuff. <laughs> How did they do it? How did this writer do it? <laughs> well, now we're halfway, a little more than halfway through the episode. We've got a new, a brand new ad for you. So we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back. Back? With episode 88, back to the podcast. <laughs> hey, Greg. Hi, Daniel. Don't sound so glum. We've got a new sponsor. You're kidding. Is it something I put on my foot? I'm glad you asked, Greg, because these are designed specifically for your feet. Taft. Like the president? (laughs) We're sponsoring the re-election campaign of President (laughs) Taft. Taft is actually a direct-to-consumer men's footwear brand specializing in unique, bold boot and shoe designs. They design with boldness in mind to ensure all their products are as unique and stylish as their customers. You will not find these anywhere else. And when you say stylish, you sent me the the website and the first words that came out of my mouth like, ooh, stylish. And I don't <laughs> I don't talk like an like yeah. a copywriter all the time. But you I was like, gasped. stylish, yeah. The whole city Bold. heard you gasp. <laughs> They're really nice shoes. Yeah. Every single detail of their shoes and their boots are considered from laces to the eyelets. They take extra steps to ensure the end product is perfect. And get this, Greg. They're handcrafted in Europe. Europe? Oh my God, yeah. that means that you're going to wear them. <laughs> I only wear shoes that were handcrafted in Europe. Well, here's the thing. They searched the globe looking for the right factories, and they found the very best ones in España, Greg. Duolingo taught me that that's Spain. Each shoe is handcrafted by generational shoemakers who are artists in their own right. And each shoe is handcrafted, handcut, and stitched. So this allows for only the best parts of the leather to be used. It's all the highest quality. They're built to last everything. They source the highest materials in the world to make the best shoes and boots that they can. All the leather are full grain to ensure that they are not only comfortable but also durable and they feature Blake stitch construction for longevity and added flexibility and the soles are made from stacked leather with rubber injections for traction which is good because I wear my shoes until literally it's just like a helmet for my feet and there's nothing on the bottom and I'm just padding and puddles on the road. <laughs> I've known you for almost, if yeah. not more than 10 years, and I've seen you in two different shoes. Yeah. So I know that this is true. At the same time. <laughs> so if you want to get these shoes, which you should, they're really nice looking, visit taftclothing.com, T-A-F-T, like the president, clothing.com. And if you want, get this, Greg, we've got a new promo code for this, L-A-10, that's oh. L-A-1-0. And if you use that code, you're going to get 10% off your order of any full-priced boot, shoe, or sneaker purchase. That expires June 1st, 2021. Valid site-wide, excluding last chance items. One use per customer cannot be combined with any other discounts. That's LA10 for 10% off your shoes. Let's do it. Let's buy some shoes. Let's do it. Let's buy some shoes. (laughs) Cue the montage. Vacation playing. (laughs) We're walking out of all of these websites holding all these bags (laughs) of shoes. They all say Europe on it, all the bags, and re-elect President Taft. Get these shoes. They're wonderful use promo code la10 that's taftclothing.com taft shoes greg be beautiful i was i thought you were gonna say these boots were made for walking <laughs> why would i think something that you thought up you didn't say you it. get the email <laughs> greg, daniel we, i was about to broach this ad to you how dare you <laughs> daniel do you know any good podcasts i could listen to right now greg I've listened do you know to any good podcasts them. that i could listen to right now what are you doing you stole my line again <laughs> i thought this was the this isn't was the game this not the bit but how about going 
Behind the Bits. That's right, a transition. We're advertising right now a different podcast for you called Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis. It is a serious talk about stand-up comedy. So what it, it, he has comedians come on, stand-up comedians that you've probably heard of, and he talks about things like how do they write their comedy sets, which jokes work, which ones failed, how do you find your comedic voice, which comedy clubs are the best, that sort of thing that we could we, finally use to find <laughs> our comic voices. I like to listen to comedians and comedy writers talk about writing jokes on all levels, like beginners yeah, no, to I, the legends. I love podcasts like this. I love the creative process. So when people ask those hard-hitting questions, no matter what level they are, I'm so interested. Yeah, me too. Almost more on the lower level because I'm like, how are you doing it? Because yeah. I know how I'm doing it and it's not working. We know a lot of people who listen to this are obviously fans of comedy to listen to our show because, I mean, come on. What, you don't come for the history, do you? You stay for the like maybe 40 seconds total of funny banter <laughs> padded out over like 30 minutes. But you're Heavily here. edited. You come for the heavily edited banter. But This show, Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis, won Discover Pods Award for Best Interview Style Podcast in 2020. That's a oh, lot wow. more than we've ever... That's, we give awards to each other. They don't count yeah. <laughs> according to the internet. According to every press release we put that on. <laughs> so this is an award-winning podcast and you have guests like Corey Ryan Forrester, Leanne Ward, and Ian Bag. You should definitely check this show out, Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis if you love comedy, which you obviously do. Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis. Go check it out. <laughs> And we're back. Hi, how's your pee? I'm devoid of all liquids at this point now, and I'm ready to go to our final artist. I cannot wait. My girlfriend Ada interned at her museum, or her... It's not a museum. Uh, actually, it's her I school. I, I don't know who you're talking about, because I haven't started the story yet, so... Um, you can throw that in later. Greg, uh, a word? You're out of line. Idiot. That was out of line. <laughs> you signed an NDA. You said you wouldn't spoil it. NDA meaning never disrupt Daniel. Uh, no. Asshole. <laughs> it's an NDDA. <laughs> Okay, so let's, uh, before we can officially talk about it, I have to uh, give you my limerick at the beginning. Yeah. Sister, sister, that's it. Uh, this is the story. <laughs> who I think actually one of the sisters lives by here because oh, yeah. we saw her standing in front of this house that was for sale. I kid you not, next to a house that looks exactly like it that was also for sale next door. So I assume the sister sisters moved into these. Tia and Tamara. Tia and Tamara. When you started the sentence, I thought you meant a woman of the church. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, why are you Yeah, they're buying houses in Studio City. Hey, why not? But I also think that they should make a reboot of Sister Sister yeah. of their kids called Cousin Cousin. <laughs> But for some reason, they're still twins. <laughs> oh, God. So this is the story of a lady who I had never heard of, but everyone I mentioned her to is like, oh, yeah, I, I know her. <laughs> Sister Mary Corita. So you say Ada interned at the, at the, at the, the school, art yeah. center. The art center. Is, I, I was there a couple times. It's a beautiful place. And she, you know, she got me really into Sister Corita. Not her real name. She was born Frances Elizabeth Kent okay. on November 20th, 1918 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Do you know a lot about her or just you've seen her stuff? I've seen her stuff. I know uh, whatever Ada told me about her. So she sounds really fascinating. Are you going to tell the RFK story? No. If I remember the story correctly sister Corita was a big supporter of robert kennedy and he knew her and she talked to him the night before he was killed weird and she whispered to him sirhan 
Sir, Sir Han. Han. <laughs> the all, other artist I almost did was the Ackermans, Evelyn and Jerome, who my grandpa worked for, which is why I want to talk about them. I just did, couldn't speak about their art. But when my grandpa was, my grandpa worked for them, he put stuff up at the ambassador of theirs. So that's why they were watching the, the uh, assassination. The assassination. Because he was like, I put that up. I put that up. And that's why they, it was on the TV because he wanted to show off. And then Robert Kennedy got shot. He was like, we better turn this off. What a, my big break. <laughs> this is it. I'm finally going to be respected <laughs> as an artist. Oh no. The See, worst thing to happen to America <laughs> since the last Kennedy just happened. The worst thing to happen to America again. The, the brother one, of the worst thing to ever happen to America. <laughs> the little brother of the worst thing. Back to Sister Mary Karina. Nay, Francis Elizabeth Kent. Thank you. Maybe related to Clark Kent. She's at from 18, Smallville, right? At, She's yeah, from Iowa. Smallville, Iowa. Yeah. At 18 months, her dad moved the family to Vancouver to work Vancouver, Iowa, <laughs> to work in his brother's restaurant. And when she was around four or five, the family relocated again to Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, America, the United States part. Her dad became a landlord of some property in Hollywood and they themselves lived. I wonder if he allowed people to record podcasts in their parking. I can't see that. You're recording the shadow radio program in my undercarriage? (laughs) So they themselves lived in the heart of Hollywood. They were at 6616 DeLongpre, which is actually a couple doors down from DeLongpre Park, which is where that cursed statue of Rudolph Valentino is. Right. And strangely enough, right next door to a print shop, which is funny if you know a little more about about her, which apparently everybody but me does. As I learned that everyone else knows. <laughs> I learned I'm some sort of neophyte and I know <laughs> nothing about art. Uh, yeah, they were like right in the heart of Hollywood. That's crazy. Her family was pretty religious so they went to the Blessed Sacrament Parish on uh, Sunset, which is also where little Francis went to elementary school. Mm-hmm. But when she wasn't in school or church, she was just hanging around Hollywood. This was the heart of Hollywood and this was like 1923 in the heart of Hollywood when like Charlie Chaplin and going around defining what movie movie making was and then this little girl was across the street probably watching all of that happen so like standing next to chuck jones as he was watching it happen too she's trying to give him a bible he's trying to give her like a piece of dynamite or something he's chewing on a carrot what's up sister (laughs) i mean she was like across the street basically from charlie chaplin studios so she was like right there when that was happening but little francis was more interested in making a different kind of art in the form of drawing and making posters which her dad was thrilled about and encouraged her to continue doing it which she did throughout her her time in high school at the Los Angeles Girls High School, which is now Bishop Konati, Our Lady of Laredo, near Koreatown. You're going to have to correct me on these this Catholic Loretto? terminology. <laughs> yeah. It's pronounced Koreatown. <laughs> this was also a Catholic school, but the younger nuns who taught there also encouraged her art. Okay. So when she graduated in 1936, she made the obvious career choice everyone expected her to make and announced she was becoming a nun. Whoa. And everyone was surprised by this, but it made perfect sense to her. Like She was religious and it was 1936 and going to college to become a nun was a way for a woman to get a higher education right. in a time when not many women had that option. The school she chose was the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which is at 5515 Franklin Avenue, just below the American Film Institute, also in Hollywood. Or maybe Los Feliz? I'd say Los Feliz. Yeah, borderline. Yeah. L- let's agree to borderline. Well, well, you know what? Meet me on the borderline. <laughs> Meet me Dixie. at the crossroads, <laughs> which is where you should always put a church. It's, it's you a should dangerous. also do all your... Just in case you're tempted <laughs> to get really good at guitar. This was a pretty old order of Catholicism and the LA chapter in particular had been around since 1871 of Immaculate Heart of Mary but it was also kind of a liberal school as far as a Catholic nunnery can be a liberal place to be. In the school she learned the usual nun stuff but you know nunchucks uh, (laughs) nun the one letter on a dreidel that gives you nothing when you spin it. She learned the 
sort of stuff. None is the loneliest number. <laughs> Second to none, which was <laughs> the name of her study group. Please keep going. I want to think of more nun stuff, <laughs> but I've got none. Uh, she was also able to take art classes, which she really enjoyed. One of her teachers who she loved there was Dr. Alois, it's a man, Schart, who, which is unfortunate, who yeah. was a German who had fled Hitler, but before he did, he was the director of painting at the Berlin Museum. Wow, really? And he came to teach at this nunnery. He had also helped put on the first shows in Germany of Paul Klee and Vasily Kandinsky. Wow. So he was like a big deal. That's a big deal. And she learned a lot from him. For I me to know those names, that's a big deal. <laughs> For me to understand a reference in the art world? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> that's a crossover artist. She took a particular liking to medieval religious art, of course, but also of the modern art of the day, which at the time was the late 1930s, yeah. which might as well be medieval religious art yeah, at this yeah, point. For sure. She graduated in 1941 and became just kind of a rank and file nun. But in 1944, she was assigned to teach children from the First Nations in British Columbia. So okay. she was back near Vancouver until 1947 when she rejoined the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but this time as a teacher in the art department. So now she was teaching art herself at her old art alma mater. Uh, Alma Mater from cars? From cars? <laughs> Your old car is called an Alma Mater. <laughs> Meanwhile, I can't even remember what Mater's saying now. Get her done? No. That's it. Your truck, truck, truck. No, what? what, what? He has a saying. Maybe he has a saying. The hot voice potatoes. Says, That's hot potatoes hot to potatoes. me. Meanwhile, at the same time, she began her master's program at USC in art history while also taking summer art classes at Woodbury, also classes at Chouinard, which is now Cal Arts, and also the Otis College of wow. Art and Design. So she was just entrenched in learning as much about art as she could. Yeah. But in the last year of her master's program in 1951, she took a few extra credits she needed to fill because she had all of her required classes. So it didn't matter what she took. So just on a lark, she said, oh, I'll sign up for this screen printing class. Why not? It's an easy A yeah, probably. A joke skill to know. <laughs> she puts her sunglasses on. <laughs> Which uh, have like crosses all over. <laughs> Explain what screen printing is. You know You, know you burn an image onto a screen and you put the screen on top of what you want the image to be on and then you cover it with paint and the image stays from what's been burned through. You do that to posters. You do that to shirts. shirts. Well, uh, that'll play into it. You could do it to anything. Yeah, almost. you could do it to anything. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I wish I was better at it. I took a class at Trade Tech. I got a B. <laughs> Greg, tell us about screen printing. Well, it's a skill I wish I was better at. I got a B. <laughs> Most of her education in screen printing actually came from Maria Sodi de Ramos Martinez, who was a printmaker that had been married to Alfredo Ramos Martinez, who was a famous Mexican muralist. Oh, wait, so what was the name again? She was Maria Sodi de Ramos Martinez. He was Alfredo Ramos Martinez. He was the famous Mexican muralist. So she was learning from another master. Of, yeah, basically like a, an artist. Yeah. And something about screen printing really connected with her. It was a way of expressing creativity, but it was also a sort of tangible skill that could be taught, which is great for her as a teacher yes. at a women's Catholic school because she was able to teach these women a skill they would never have learned anywhere else. And it's also a skill that doesn't require, like you can go into it with an art background, yeah, but it, it, it's just it's a, a cool craft. thing to know. It's, it's a craft, a craft like, as it's well. It's more of a craft art yeah but also she liked screen printing let's just put art let's just put it down as an art form let's just <laughs> let's just go ahead and say it's technical let's just go and say a child could do this <laughs> but also she liked screen printing because it was a way to make a lot of one design yes which would not only make her art widely available to anyone who wanted it but also it would be affordable because she could do it quickly yeah. reproduce it quickly so she liked how democratic screen printing was and she was making her own art and it was kind of interesting her early stuff was kind of like pop medieval art okay again like it's impossible to explain art but it was it was very religious and kind of two-dimensional like the stuff you would see in the boring parts of a museum but it had this 1950s flair to it where it felt like a modern retelling of something extremely old like the things you see of like baby jesus like suckling on yeah. an 
it's this weird like two-dimensional thing and there's halos around people it would be like that but like if it was made in the 1950s right. so it was kind of interesting in that way but but not that interesting because like i said it's the boring part i of would the love it if you just described catholic paintings all day i mean there's, there's like a bowl of fruit there's like a kid crying there's there, a halo it's like a long panel of wood of someone's <laughs> being stabbed everyone's at dinner this beard guy is in the middle the bad people have really big noses <laughs> i always get so annoyed in the catholic <laughs> it's so funny there was one print she had done in her class at usc that she wasn't really happy with so she decided to add color to it and that was when a style was born for her it yeah. was called the lord is with thee and it was exactly that kind of modern medieval stuff but now it had this crazy color in it and in 1952 uh, she decided to enter it into the la county print competition at lacma and it won first prize wow first and that prize. First, first prize first prize uh, and mm-hmm. second prize we're gonna put down screen printing again yep. this shirt that someone made <laughs> you're rude then she entered it in the california state fair art competition and it also won first prize wow. which i feel like you can't you know most things say like if this is won before you can't submit it again yeah. so look nuns aren't always the most honest people which was nice but she also wasn't trying to become an artist like right. this wasn't what she was she wanted to do she was an art teacher who just liked expressing herself in that way so she kept teaching and kept making things and finding who she was as an artist and the next step came just two years later in 1954 when she started using text in her prints yes so she was really into the written word and what words meant but she also just liked the look of letters and typeface and fonts kind of like you like yeah. this, this is your perfect artist <laughs> I'm, she's I'm, catholic <laughs> <laughs> she's catholic she's alive in the 50s she wears a habit <laughs> back when being a catholic was a bad thing so now her prints were mixing images with type so she described it as the word becomes the picture right learning letters was like you know an owl yeah. you have to draw an owl now I'm like yeah. I, no i'll write I'll write an L. They're like, no, you draw the L. I, I never had so much unlocking of the mind as I had doing research for this episode. But yeah, it is to think about like someone had to make an L at yeah. a certain point and it had, you know, like there's a reason it is designed. There were probably 40 drafts of what an L yeah. used to, what an L looked like. Well, that's like. just two M's. Sure, we all know the W is rehashing of two different <laughs> letters. but And it's not even a double U, it's a double, double V. I mean, come on. Which is already a flipped over M, <laughs> but okay. But then the 60s happen and they hit her hard. Q is incense and peppermints <laughs> you and i have very different references for 60s montages mine is like the commercial hippie of music and yeah. yours is Kent State. <laughs> i took too much acid let's roll the tape guys i was hired by sony to tell people i took too much acid that's my version of the 60s cue the monkeys can we cue the monkeys here in 1962 she took her students on a field trip to the ferris gallery at 736 la cienica right by melrose place okay. which is another place that deserves its own own segment someday in another episode because it it became an insanely influential art gallery but on this particular day they were having this guy's first ever solo pop art exhibition and on display for the first time ever was these screen prints that he had done of cans of campbell's soup you're kidding me this was andy warhol's first ever pop art show and the world debut of the campbell soup cans it was in los angeles and sister carita was there with her students <laughs> to see it Okay, now you can look at our... Please don't talk to the man. The man with the funny hair and the glasses. Please don't talk to him. He looks a little bit like Dr. Zayas from Planet of the Apes, which you haven't seen yet. But please don't <laughs> talk you, to him. You'll understand. Your you'll kids understand. are going to love it. But she was also a time traveler. <laughs> 
this was just an insane moment in history and she was there but seeing what he did with the soup cans of making the mundane commercial products of the everyday modern world yeah. into art unlocked something inside of her cue anything by the birds right now <laughs> cue a, a wimpy folk band covering Bob Dylan's charged political songs <laughs> cue that cue Bob Dylan's original version of All Along the Watchtower <laughs> she said that after the show coming home you saw everything like Andy Warhol uh, perverted uh, <laughs> she started seeing things in the grocery store differently and importantly the city of LA differently right. LA in the 60s was becoming a billboard mecca and seeing all these advertisements for different things all around town shaped the new artistic lens she was seeing the world through but she wasn't critical of this commercialism she was still a nun so what she you can never criticize commercialism if you're a nun it's one of the tenets of Catholicism so what she saw in all this was a kind of spirituality in the commercialism she saw that by showing you what people were interested in buying billboards were carrying what the world loved what they hoped for be it in art or meaning or just to own and what they believed in like that's what she saw in a billboard that's what she saw in angeline's billboard this is her they live moment yeah she put on her andy warhol glasses that yeah. he handed out at the show <laughs> she fought keith david in an alleyway she put on sunglasses and she saw wear them put them on put on the glasses that was her uh, fighting the devil yeah she just she basically just looked at like comet wow yeah this take is- a coffee <laughs> She didn't see them as ugly blemishes on the city, but as urban psalms for the modern consumerist world. Wow. She wanted to reveal the spirituality of the everyday by showing everyday items in her art. She said groceries became a revelation. The people coming out with bundles of food, it's all like a great ceremony and the whole drudgery of shopping has become my inspiration. What this amounted to was her screen printing style with images and text combined into one thing was now going to focus on the blending of commercial advertising and spiritual beliefs, which is these are like really big concepts yeah 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 yeah. again which is hard to yes to grasp if you're not looking at it so just stare at some of sister carita's stuff (laughs) do a few more hail marys from our football segment what was our football segment called Uh, tossing the pigskin thank you It's impossible to explain. So let's just, I'm just going to give some actual examples. Okay. Her first pop work she did was the summer after she saw the Warhol show. It was a piece called Wonder Bread. It was splotches of paint in the colors of the Wonder Bread logo, but they were subtly shaped more like communion wafers, the oh, original wow. Wonder Bread. So it <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it's the sort of thing where like, I don't, I'll look at it. I don't get it. And then you explain it to me. I'm like, oh, that's on the nose, but also brilliant. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Another one she did use the slogan of General Mills. The big G stands for goodness, but knowing who this is coming from the g also stood for god All right. the big g <laughs> but not just the actual slogan she also started embedding quotes in the pieces from anybody you could imagine ee e. cummings walt whitman lewis carroll simon and garfunkel who make an appearance in our intro <laughs> the beatles the doors her own sayings things her student says native american blessings Camus, samuel beckett she did another wonder bread one that had a gandhi quote in it that said there are so many hungry people that god cannot appear to them except in the form of of bread. She, that should have been a Wonder Bread ad. <laughs> I can't wait for Gandhi to sell out to Wonder Bread. <laughs> to Wonder bread. She did one with the slogan for Del Monte tomato sauce. The slogan was makes meatballs sing. But inside the word sing, she put a Bible verse about mountains and rivers exalting the arrival of God. And she said about it, if mountains can shout and rivers can clap their hands, then meatballs can sing. 
Fair point. So, how, so, can, how can you argue with that? You can't argue with a nun. <laughs> it's illegal in California. <laughs> so she kind of, you know, like, from what I can gather, she didn't see it as literally, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These sayings can apply to, to she, the everyday. She, she read the Bible, didn't take it literally, and understood that it's all just guided, spiritual guidance. Yeah, and, and she's also, like breaking that down and also, in a graphic pop way. And it's also kind of a joke. Like, she didn't think the Bible was a joke, but right. like what she was doing was kind of playful. Her output, yeah. She did another Del Monte one where the ad said the juiciest tomatoes of all, and she wrote in it mother mary is the juiciest tomato of all <laughs> so it was pretty cheeky but it was also a way for her to shake up the teachings of the church and present positive christian messages yeah. in a modern way through the vehicle of companies like coca-cola and esso gasoline and canada tried yeah just as you break down the density and unappealing nature of it, religious it, it's like 10 things i hate about you you know like yeah. i'm not gonna watch the taming of the shrew but yeah. i'll watch this movie with heath ledger in yeah. it <laughs> I'll watch this movie where Julia Stiles does horrific dance moves. <laughs> and she brought this new, extremely cutting-edge art style to her classes as well. She started taking her students out around town to see the art and things like street signs and packaging in the grocery store. She would give them assignments like painting blindfolded, or she'd say, sit down, you have to draw 200 things right now. Or she'd say, sit down, you have to stare at your arm for three hours. <laughs> like, it was just these sort of, I hate to say it, unlock your mind. Right. Like, do this sort of thing. And her classrooms themselves went from a Catholic school art classroom to basically Andy Warhol's factory. The way they described it was just like random movies were projected on the wall and rock music was playing while everyone was just going around creating these crazy art pieces. Like yeah. it was just sort of a, a free love sort of thing, okay. but love in a different sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two of these students were Jan Stewart and Gear Cavanaugh, who went on to become famous LA artists in their own right. She even transformed the school's annual Mary's Day celebration from what used to be nuns walking by in white gowns into pretty much any musical number from hair with like flowers and summer dresses and tambourines like she she kind of revolutionized the school but as the 60s went on as happened to all the hippies even the nun hippies peace and love turned into political activism and living in LA she was exposed to and made well aware of all the social and political issues mm -hmm. going on at the time and her art started reflecting that she started incorporating into her stuff phrases like why not give a damn about your fellow man and love your brother and make love not war she did a piece about the water uprising. She was very big on social justice and was vocally anti-Vietnam and police brutality and supported the United Farm Workers Union, Amnesty International, the Women's International League for Peace, and the mm -hmm. Physicians for Social Responsibility. She said, I admire people who march. I admire people who go to jail. I don't have the guts to do that, so I do what I can, right. which was her art. She, so she didn't, she didn't shy away from any of this stuff. She said, it is a huge danger to pretend awful things do not happen, but you need enough hope to keep on going. I'm trying to make hope and and you have to grab it where you can. She was seeing beauty yeah. in in things nobody else was really seeing beauty in. And her work reflected that. While it addressed all these awful things, the underlying message was always still peace, love, and hope. And while she had no desire to be a celebrity artist, you can't be a radically political pop art nun and not have people <laughs> And not that. get a Vice article written about you. <laughs> people wanted her stuff. And since she was screen printing at all, she was able to provide that. She had her art printed on posters, t-shirts, book jackets, billboards greeting cards it was sold in galleries mm -hmm. church bookstores and just by mail because from 1968 to 
1985, she had Carita Prints, Inc. in North Hollywood that was like a sort of warehouse that would print and ship all this stuff out. And then the commission started coming in. In 1963, she was hired to do a 40-foot-tall mural for the Vatican Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. She did a design for Reynolds Aluminum, the IBM Christmas display in New York City in 1965. In 1966, the LA Times named her one of the nine women of the year alongside people like Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Jean King, and Mrs. Samuel Yorty, which I feel like she probably shouldn't be there, but it was the LA Times. <laughs> uh, in 1967, she was on the cover of the Christmas issue of Newsweek and was also one of Harper's Bazaar's 100 American Women of Accomplishment. She did a lot of touring and lectures all around the country at this mm-hmm. time. In 1966 alone, she had 151 women shows across the United States Wow! in just one year. She did almost 800 screen prints and thousands of watercolors in a few books like Learning by Heart, mm-hmm. Teachings to Free the Creative Spirit, and The Artist as Social Activist Amid Adversity, How the Job is Done, and a series called Heroes and Sheroes. <laughs> Sheroes, I love that. And she really was up there with Warhol at the time, who, by the way, loved her stuff. Oh, cause, really? Because he was a Catholic guy mm-hmm. who was kind of say it like him i don't even know how i am a catholic, <laughs> I'm not a catholic. <laughs> but he i'm not a catholic he, i'm not anything he was raised catholic but also his sexuality did not align with catholicism yeah. so he was kind of torn within himself mm-hmm. and now he sees a nun sort of saying like it's okay to be this it's okay to be free so he loved it and she was often on display alongside him mm-hmm. and guys like Liechtenstein. like she was one of the major 60s pop artists yeah. but back at the nunnery she was made head of the art department at the Immaculate Heart of Mary in 1964 and they gave her her own studio at 5518 Franklin where she would work and teach and then live at the school just across the street and that place is a dry cleaner now uh, that was going to be demolished just a few months ago to turn into a parking lot but in December 2020 Los Angeles history everybody in December 2020 it was saved from demolition and now they're on track to get it protected status but good luck with that (laughs) she was also in with the local high culture scene and was good friends with people like John Cage and Charles and Ray Eames well well. and would regularly go to their house for dinner parties those Uh, hot potatoes they served hot potatoes every (laughs) night she also started the great men lecture series at Immaculate Heart of Mary where she'd bring in people like Alfred Hitchcock and Joseph von Sternberg she herself was an influence of a one Saul Bass who okay, designed yeah. the movie credits for Vertigo, Psycho, North by Northwest, West Side Story, Big yeah. and Goodfellas. Big uh, mid-century modern graphic designer. Uh, and big credits designer. <laughs> but as we on this podcast know well, not everybody's for everybody. Some people weren't fans of Sister Carita. Let me guess. Uh, in particular, the Archbishop of LA, Cardinal <laughs> James McIntyre, who was famously anti-civil rights and pro-Vietnam War, and he hated Sister Carita mm-hmm. because she was so outspoken in the opposite direction. He called her art weird and sinister, and he called her lecture guest communists. So in 1966, he wrote to Immaculate Heart of Mary, telling them to make her stop making art wow the school fought for her because they believed in what she was doing yeah. and also they were becoming more and more liberal and that was accelerated when vatican II happened which is a crazy concept that had to be explained to me by lissa <laughs> explain it to me because i don't think i know i don't really know vatican II was like 1962 or something they're like okay the vatican's going to be more modern so they changed some of their rules like you don't have to go to purgatory
purgatory and babies can die and go to heaven still even how do the crazy thing is that they called it vatican 2 yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) sequels are big at the time isn't it weird that a bunch of guys can say that they're changing the rules of god and all the things but not all they're making it not all the rules you still can't be gay Um, (laughs) try telling me that we tried we talked with god he (laughs) wouldn't allow it Um, he really wanted us to just hold hands and make out but in 1968 there was just so much awful stuff going on in the country and this cardinal was so against her and this jesuit priest friend of hers had just gotten arrested for breaking into a draft office and burning the files with napalm and she was touring and making art and teaching and she was just exhausted and she just needed a break so she took a sabbatical in the strictest sense of the word black sabbatical and (laughs) she went to cape cod to get away from it all but while she was there she reevaluated her life and she decided that she didn't want to be a nun anymore so she left the order some say she renounced her faith completely but we're not really sure about that but immaculate heart of mary completely understood and they themselves broke away from the vatican in 1970 and became a lay community so now the former sister carita was out of the church for the first time ever in her life living in massachusetts like she didn't know how to like cook or do laundry (laughs) like she was god does this stuff for me (laughs) I snap my fingers and there's mana everywhere. (laughs) Oh, I got a stain. God. God. Um, She was offered a job teaching art at Harvard, but she rejected it, just wanting to kind of do her own thing. Her art around this time became less poppy and a little mellower. Later on, she was commissioned to do some art for Hands Across America. But her two big things during this period were in 1971, she was hired by the Boston Gas Company to do a design on one of their giant gas tanks. Mm -hmm. And it became the largest copyrighted artwork in the world. Wow. And it was also a beloved local icon, so much so that in 1992, when they tore the tank down, people freaked out so they put up a new one with the same design on it the second big thing and arguably the biggest thing she ever did was arguably the smallest thing she ever did in 1983 she was asked by the u.s post office to design a stamp it was a series of five stamps all designed by different artists all with the theme of love on april 17th 1985 the stamp was released and since it was a love stamp she wanted it to be unveiled at the united nations the usps decided to unveil it on the set of the love boat (laughs) a decision that made her furiously upset saying that's not the kind of love I meant the TV definition of love is nothing very deep and everything gets resolved in an hour I think it's dangerous to educate people that way that love happens fast troubles are resolved easily so she refused to attend the ceremony but hers was the most popular stamp of the series and was issued over 700 million times you've probably seen the love stamp you know I've sent out the love stamp on our uh, postcards that's a different love stamp she wanted it to be unveiled at the love shack (laughs) Well, if you don't know, it's a little place where we think we'll it's get a little, together. Little place where we'll send our mail out from. <laughs> Love stamp. Unfortunately, back in 1974, she had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. Beat it and got it again in 1977, beat it, and then got it again in 1986 in the liver and couldn't beat it this time and died September 18th, 1986 in Boston. She left all the art she had left over to what was formerly her former convent and now known as the Immaculate Heart Community, which is now a Catholic middle school and high school that Katy Perry tried to buy and move into in 2013, if you remember that. And one of the nuns died in court arguing against it. In 1997, which is a completely different story. Yeah, that is... (laughs) That's maybe an episode all on its own. In 1997, they formed the Carita Art Center, Mm -hmm. uh, which would go on to host Ada as an intern, which was meant to foster peace and social justice through art. They were planning to open up a new space there and have a show of her art in New York City, and then COVID hit, which is becoming a new saying in this show. But just a few months before COVID hit, the city of LA made
made November 20th, Corita Kent Day. Cool. Sister Corita was as innovative and influential and forward thinking and big as her contemporaries, but there seems to be a few reasons why she isn't remembered as much as someone like Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. For one thing, she almost exclusively worked in silkscreen, which is less regarded yeah. as a high art form. And also her stuff was very commercially sold because it was a silkscreen. Yeah. Second, she wasn't cool like Andy Warhol was. Right. She didn't have her own Velvet Underground? No. She, yeah, she, she didn't, she didn't she hang out with the doors? <laughs> she formed this band. It was uh, not for everybody. They mostly played on lutes. <laughs> and maybe most importantly, she was a woman. And not only she was a woman, she was a nun. Yeah. So novel though it was, she just didn't fit the image of what someone doing what she was doing was supposed yeah. to look like. Like you did not expect. Which is a shame because now that I am more knowledgeable about artists and they annoy me, I would rather have a pure-hearted nun <laughs> do commercial pop art than yeah, like the, the like the rugged loner. I think I'm just over rugged loners. From now on, artists should all just have bags over their faces. <laughs> but regardless, outside of the Corita Art Center, which has a huge collection of her stuff, you can see her art in the Hammer Museum, the Berkeley Art Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the Fisher Museum, the Dallas Art Museum, Harvard Art Museum, Honolulu Museum of Art, Library of Congress, LACMA, the Met, MOCA, MOMA. Uh, come on, everybody, do the MOCA, MOMA. <laughs> uh, the New York Public Library, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the San Diego Museum of Art, the Chartwell Collection in Auckland, New Zealand. Pretty much every major city in the English-speaking world yeah. has some of her art in their collection. So enjoy your 15 minutes, Andy Warhol, because pretty soon the number of minutes you'll have left is none. <laughs> yeah, she's a pretty... The more I learned about her, like, again, her art, looking at it, I'm like, okay, but yeah. the more I learn about her and what she was trying to say, I'm like standing up applauding at my computer (laughs) yeah so that's just a few LA artists that really not only were they in LA but LA influenced yeah like their art is LA and their output was very LA too I'm always a big fan of any story we do where their personal life and their art reflects the city and and the city shapes how they make art exactly (laughs) it's kind of sounded like a parasitic relationship the city's kind of like a parasite to artists I've always said that (laughs) I've always said that you know I've always said that eighth grade quote in my little yearbook Eighth grade, when I got a, a C on my art project, I said, this city is a parasite on my art. And I spat on the floor and stormed out. And the teacher stood up. Yeah. And I turned back around and said, hey, you know, I like applause. And then they, they stopped applauding. This isn't really for them. Yeah. Oh, I, you, you've lost your cred. But we have some fans of ours yeah. who are also artists. And we wanted to, you know, check these people out. And again, if we missed some or we don't know you're an artist, yeah. I feel Please. horrible. But yeah, let us know Please let also us know. who I've got here kevin smith right he's at c underscore demon underscore vinyl he does drawings and also great uh, toys monster <laughs> stuff so we've got edric tham at oh Epic yeah P. edric oh, sweet, um, little sweet little sweet little edric sweet innocent edric <laughs> um eric martinez who mm-hmm. did our our current logo fantastic at, at eric martinez we've got at cheltenham underscore road who right. does like coasters and things like that at it's just shez he <laughs> does cartoons there's shea Viditao, who is right. a patreon person well several of these people are patreon people at shea needs yoga Kim Morton Singleton at Kim Singleton Arch. He did a chicken boy a great painting chicken boy too. based on our episode. <laughs> There's at Valley underscore Hans who does photography of different places around the valley, which again is it's art. Like you'll drive by this strip mall yeah. and you'll see his picture and like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> There's at Little Los Angeles who does miniature models of things from right. LA's past. We've got Ada G. Ruiz. That's right. Who's been doing stitch work. And former intern of Korea. <laughs> and at a tiny little studio who also does paintings Perfect. and has uh, adorable children. <laughs> her her tiniest works these two little <laughs> children can you think of any that i missed because I, I, I our fans i wanted to give a little love to my trade tech family 
Kelly. To myself. To myself, of course. <laughs> People that I was in sign graphics with were fantastic artists. Carlos Aguilar, who uh, goes by Sinner with one N. I think he's at Sinner LTS. Is it like Signer? Signer, yeah. He was our uh, teacher's, a pretty much our, our good teacher. Ralph Doc Guthrie is our teacher. He's been doing signs since the 70s and probably longer than that. You can is, he Guth- is he related is he to oh, the Guthrie? Is he a Woody Guthrie? He's one of the last Guthrie. The lost Guthries. The lost tribe of Guthries. <laughs> Stacy Helms was from Denver, but she's working here at Gold Standard Signs. You have Nami O, who painted the Hope Liquor Mart on 7th Street. I think she's at ohnami.signs. Uh, my good friend Panda is working out of Santa. <laughs> I think it's pandemonium.signs. I, my phone's dead, so I can't look it up. Nico is fantastic. Anika Nuck and UK. Alex Aspiro, who's like an incredible artist who is not on the social media, but if you see him on the street, tell him I said hi. <laughs> Sign Graphics just like spits out great workers. And that's the thing. Screen printing is another part. And muralism is an, is an all part of the Sign Graphics program. And they, they're all very technical things. You can go in not knowing really how to, like I didn't know how to draw, but I learned how to yeah. do everything I do. It's a now. gateway to high art. <laughs> yeah, it's a gateway to high art. <laughs> okay, so we have one last thing. Uh, we saved it for the end. We've got a quick listener question. Right. If you want to unwind for a little bit, this one is from Eric Nussbaum, <gasps> a, Nussbaum. An, an artist of a different form. <laughs> he is the author of Stealing Home, who you might hear from us uh, with him in a couple weeks, yeah, maybe. maybe. We won't say. Uh, his question is, what are some of your favorite contemporary writers on LA slash LA historians? Which is a hard question. It was, because when he asked him, I'm like, oh, do I not read? <laughs> I don't think that I read. Have I read anything about <laughs> Los Angeles? I don't, I don't know if I've read anything past like 1990, which turns out is not 10 years ago. <laughs> I'm not two anymore <laughs> yeah this he, was hard because for us like we're constantly just reading things for this episode yeah. so it's hard to then like all right the episode's over i'm gonna sit down and read this book about the water wars <laughs> like it's hard for it's hard like i kind of want to disengage but i found that there's people whose articles articles i keep stumbling upon yeah. th- there's one who i keep stumbling upon who always gives me good stuff who you always get good stuff from also because i've heard you mention her name cecilia rasmussen yes she does a lot of good stuff for the she la does. times and other things but then one who who I like she a little less so now but she was for a while sort of the writer about the Kings Helene Elliott is also a good contemporary she's a sports writer for the LA Times I also follow another female writer if I had to pick one contemporary writer that I do like try to read everything from it's Joan Renner who runs the LA uh, deranged LA crimes and she had some panel talks uh, over the pandemic Uh, that's somebody who like I I will follow kind of religiously you know I don't follow writers news writers but like I I read a lot of stuff from like LAist news sends me stuff which I yeah. keep updated or Ali Taco or Land KCET. Magazine which I've been peeking at slowly and of course there's a, what he must have been fishing for when he asked this question there's Eric Nussbaum who is also a great contemporary LA writer about LA that, that's just a few if you want to check them out and the artists we mentioned before but hey send us some more listener questions yes. if you got one email us at la.meekly at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a suggestion for an episode right. or if uh, you can also message us on Instagram and follow us on Instagram at LA underscore Meekly or on Twitter at at LA Meekly. Meekly. You can also, if you want to subscribe to our YouTube, you can watch all of our videos. We'll probably have video of the Eric interview as as well. Oh, confirmed. Oh, oh, no, no. Theoretically, if If, we did it. If we did do that. Were we to do a video. If we did pay for Zoom for the month and let's say that we wanted to. And just tried to cram everything in while we still could get our money's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also, as we mentioned earlier, support us on Patreon and leave us a review on iTunes. I, I completely forgot the only reason and we do this is to get review on iTunes. Um, it helps us out. It makes us more noticeable yeah. and legitimate in people's mm-hmm. eyes. So if you have an iPhone, just open up your podcast app, leave us some stars on iTunes and some words if you want. It's very easy. Any last words before um, I, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I have a long list of artists, and uh, I'm hoping we do this segment again soon because there's a lot of people I want to talk about that I couldn't talk about this. Yeah, month. I really wanted to talk about that one gallery, but I, yeah. uh, it was like I don't, I don't have time. Oh, yeah, it's- Sister Carita, there's so much information about her. So enjoy April. Anyone who can get vaccinated, please get, please vaccinated. get vaccinated. Everyone else, stay safe, and also the people who get vaccinated, stay please safe. Please also continue being safe. But yeah, we'll see you in uh, May, Mother May we. Yes. May 1st, we'll see you then. Enjoy the rest of the month. Enjoy this episode. And that's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Living in one aspect of a 60s montage since 2013. The monkeys. Can't stop doing the monkeys. Did you know Forrest Gump also invented incense and peppermint? He brought a bunch of incense and peppermints to this one club, and they were like, you got an idea there. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.